Apple Knocker Radio. Well, greetings, friends. My guest today is Vesa Eti. He is the author of Light Ringers of the North, Secrets of the Occult Tradition in Finland. I have reviewed this book in a previous video. Um, I can sum up that review thusly. It's awesome. It's a great book. It works on so many levels and works, I think, would appeal to a wide variety of interests. Um, whether you're into history, whether you're actually into the occult and alternative spirituality and esotericism, um, if you're into true crime, if you're into the paranormal and the strange, um, all of those things, or, or if you're just in other cultures, if you don't happen to be Finnish, then um, you, you'll get to learn about Finland. So I just think the book works on so many levels. Something that I mentioned um, in my review also is that I love the humor in the book. If you like Finnish humor, Finnish humor is... It's got a very, very, very delicious taste. It's a, uh, it goes beyond dry. It's it's completely devoid of any kind of moisture, which is humor that I really admire, and a humor that the author Vesa Eti also has. And um, this was just a great interview. Uh, we had, I had a lot of laughs. I thought it was very fun and entertaining and funny. And uh, I just really enjoyed the conversation, and I think all of you will too. And uh, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to quit yapping, get to it. But Lightbringers of the North, Secrets of the Occult Tradition, don't forget. Seriously, man, check this out. This is a fantastic book. All right. Peace out, my friends. <clears throat> um, let's start out with one of the stories that we know is going to grab people's attention, which to me is the the mystery of the hand in the spring, um, uh, Vilo uh, Kilho. Is that how uh, you say? Uh, yeah, I know Finnish language is difficult. Uh, Vilho Noitakallio. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I understood who you meant, so all good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Could you get into that story a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, this is a case of Tattarisuo cult. It's uh, one of the more wild stories in the book. Um, well, there are plenty of wild stories in the book, but uh, that's one of the more wild ones. Uh, the events of that story took place in the early 1930s here in Finland, uh, in the Helsinki, Helsinki area. Um, there was this group of uh, five, six people, uh, working class people who, uh, who were basically robbing graves for body parts. And they used these body parts to, uh, to try to get up from this one spring uh well uh, at the Tattarisu area and they thought there was this treasure and somehow putting these body parts in this uh spring they thought that it will pop up this uh treasure magically to the surface <laughs> nothing <laughs> like that ever happened of course maybe they would have needed a few more body parts i don't know <laughs> but that didn't happen and uh, they were doing other kind of things too they were um uh, they were waging magical war against the right-wing leaning people of Finland at the time. In the end, they were also having magical wars against each other, and they were doing a very interesting channeling of uh, other worlds, dimensions, and spiritual entities from the wall of their tiny little apartment. Uh, that was what they basically were doing, and um, and um, the case. Uh, case showed up in the press in 1931 one year after the first uh, body part uh, a palm of a hand was found 
from the well uh, back then in 1930 it didn't cause like a more anything people, people were just wondering what was that but because nobody seems to miss the hand <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the case was forgotten but a year later um, it, it surfaced again because um, there was more body parts in the well and then it became a huge national scandal all the press was press was writing about it and the people were wondering and thinking that uh, what kind of uh, upper class satanic organization there is behind this this is uh this must be some some work of this kind of people but it wasn't it was just a handful of working class people who used uh, also something i didn't mention earlier and they used this um sixth and the seventh book of moses uh, in their these rituals in finnish the book goes with the name uh, mustaraamattu which is literally translates into the black bible which gives its more sinister reputation that the book actually is based on its contents but uh this was an important book for them and uh that's what they used uh, that's it in a nutshell about what they were doing what kind of people they were yeah in reading this story i'm curious do you think um was it just a case of people were maybe a little mentally ill and you um you discussed some of maybe the emotional motivations um them being kind of people who were a little lower on the socioeconomic end of the ladder and um, maybe they had some emotional need to feel like they were engaged in this meaningful kind of magical war but um i wonder and I'm not exactly sure. Tell me if, if your belief system um, makes my next question absurd. But would it be possible that they um, they got connected in kind of like a, a destructive egregore situation, kind of created a group thought form that spun out of control and uh, took them to these wild depths? Or do you think it's just pure, pure mental illness? That's a good question. Well, um i think it's safe to say that uh certainly they were uh somewhat different from your average fin <laughs> uh this is not these kind of things are not a popular hobby in the country so <laughs> they were um doing extraordinarily odd and bizarre things um they were um as was mentioned uh working class people uh, pretty poor and uh, they were uh they were, uh, there was this element of uh, uh, seeking justice in the world that was a big part of their operations too not just treasure hunting and all of that but they were uh, kind of search, uh, searching for justice and trying to bring justice by magical means in their own lives there was this one of the women of the group uh, she felt that she was uh, unfairly judged in a court case about inheritance and that really uh, was a big bummer for her and uh, they magically tried to somehow like a process through that as well and uh, then there was this uh, situation in Finland back then um, and uh, part of their uh, magical operations were uh, directed 
against um, right-leaning people politi politically, and they also were very much against Freemasons and members of the Odd Fellow and groups like that, that they didn't think highly, clearly. That kind of groups represented for them upper class, like uh, mm. people who are doing well, or something that they were not. So um, this is how they are kind of contextualized in the time we talk about it was interesting point about egregore i think that uh, any kind of a magical group or organization occult group if there are these kind of elements in the mix regardless if they are mentally stable or not um, over time certain kind of uh, what you could call egregore kind of group spirit roughly in a layman's terms uh, yeah, there starts to be something like that, that they feel they get some kind of inspiration or power or whatever. I think there must be something like that for them too. Uh, of course, they didn't use the work egregore or anything like that, but they had their own pantheon of uh, gods and these entities that they were calling in their rituals and so forth. Uh, one of them was an uh, entity called Fenetzar, I don't know like where they pick that. I don't remember seeing it any any grimoire, like a sixth and seventh book of the Moses or elsewhere. I might be wrong, but uh, this might be that they just came up with that themselves. They had their own kind of uh, uh, group of uh, the spiritual entities they were calling and so on. Clearly, they had their own kind of thing going. So you could say that there was something like egregore going on but uh and clearly they were not mentally uh most stable persons <laughs> very 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 odd mix also uh, also odd because uh like you said in your uh book review that uh these people like uh deep down uh you can't say that they were just evil and bad but they had good intentions no matter that they were like offering these body parts going to the cemetery and cutting uh fingers and hands and heads they had good intentions <laughs> maybe not the best way to do good things in the world but uh, yeah <laughs> I think that was the wildest part about the the book. I don't think I've ever encountered a story where people took such um, absurd measures, but yeah, with like good intentions. Like they really had good intentions. But one of the things in there they, um, that you wrote was about the Freemasons. Um, like they they would see the Freemasons in the graveyards. Um, is there any legitimacy to that? Was it was there like any kind of secret society, other secret societies operating in that time that might be doing something similar that they were seeing as Freemasons? Oh, in the 1930s. Um, yeah, they're, uh, they're already, uh, they were like a Freemasonry was again uh, operating in Finland. There was like a hundred year break. Uh, from uh, when was it from the uh, early 18th century till the early 19th century the time when we were under Russian rule but then it became all right again uh, in public uh, in the early 20th century and uh, we got this uh, 
Leedroid Humine Freemasonry, which is open both for men and women, and the traditional Freemasonry, Freemasonry which is open only for men. So we had Freemasons here, Odd Fellows, of course, Theosophical Society was here, uh, a bunch of other groups too, but uh, those are kind of bigger, bigger names. So there were all kind of groups uh, around, but uh, for one reason or another, they didn't feel uh, those like their own spiritual homes or or that uh, that they should would like uh, join them or so. Probably because of their background and they were kind of uh, very little educated. So mm. instead of even trying to get involved with groups like that, they <clears throat> created their very own <laughs> cult. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is such a fascinating story. And so um, quickly touch on the Freemasons as well. I'm sure you're aware that around the world, there's the Freemasons are like the heart of probably 70% of all global uh, conspiracy theories. And I yeah. actually will say that I, I have multiple friends who are Freemasons, and I actually, um, I kind of hold the organization in high esteem. Um, that doesn't mean I know everything as well. Anyway, I'm just saying i'm also aware of that is that in story in finland too are there also is it like are are general finns um suspicious of the freemason organization it's it's here it's pretty much the same mm. like like elsewhere in, in elsewhere in europe and in, in the states too like uh, they have a uh, quite many members here too and uh, of course like in the states there's also like uh, lots of uh, high level politicians and uh otherwise influ influential and powerful people involved and uh because of that it's of course very uh fruitful ground for all kind of conspiracies and and all of that exactly same thing like elsewhere in europe and and the states that uh that these guys are worshiping lucifer and they want to bring illuminati which is all these bad things controlling us and stuff but uh, of course like a uh, base on the research uh, good research academic research that has been done uh all these kind of claims are nonsense mm. uh, i have few friends too who i who are i know are members of uh or in freemasonry and uh they're all good and uh based what i've studied of it uh it looks to me all all fine like uh, no problems i don't i don't see much points in these wild rumors and stuff yeah it's 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 so interesting to me how widespread that there are so many secret societies but it's like it's always the freemasons who seem to be there at the center of all these ideas it's just really interesting so it was interesting to me to read that way back in 1930 that Velo and his group um, thought that they were the Freemasons were robbing graves and doing all these things. And that's just really interesting that it's been going on that long. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, all right, now the general question. So this book, your book was published in Finnish first, and it's been published for like four years or something like that. Uh, the first edition came out in 2015, so it's been out for now seven years. There's, uh, I think now there is the fourth Finnish print out still. And in addition to that, in Finnish, we have the audiobook. So uh, it's been around the, the Finnish version for uh, about seven years. And now it's finally out in English too, which is a great thing. 
The um, and so it seems like it was pretty successful there in Finland. Yeah, it's um, the first edition, the first print of the book went uh, uh, out of the out of the press in two weeks and the second edition uh, was very quickly prepared we made some corrections and it went into the printing machines uh, less than two weeks after the first edition had hit the bookstores it was selling really well at some point it was uh, number one non-fiction book uh, sold here and uh, there were a few occult walking tours that was inspired by it in Helsinki and Turku and uh, one theater play in uh, Oulu, northern part of Finland was inspired by it as well. And um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was uh, quite successful. Uh, partly it surprised us, partly we knew that uh, this is going to be uh, probably successful because there had been nothing like that before and there was clearly kind of a growing interest to anything related to occult or esoteric so we we were there at the right time and right place do you think is that interest in in finland um like the general landscape is it people actually interested in the spiritual ideas um as practitioners or purely as um, you know just interests just uh, just like true crime enthusiasts uh, mm. where do you think that balances mm. well there's a whole spectrum uh, like uh, there are of course those who seriously more or less practice uh, uh various kind of uh things are involved with different kind of traditions or groups and then there are those who are more just like uh, for the entertainment value first of all interested or or read the books novels uh, that deal with these subjects uh, so uh, i would say that the whole spectrum from those who are just interested for the entertainment value or they're just curious from from them to more serious practitioners like the whole spectrum has grown uh, during the last few years the interest has grown um, last time this kind of wave we had here i think it must have been in the 60s 70s something like that 80s 90s was more quiet but uh, now it's again up i think this kind of trend is probably in the world in general in western countries so um yeah there is a pretty big interest right now in these topics also here yeah i, I hope the book is uh, just as successful um in english as it was in finnish but um do you do you have any thoughts about why that is um this resurgent interest in spiritual topics and uh seemingly um kind of like non-traditional spiritual topics mm, well i think first of all uh like pretty much everything, anything in culture, um, things seem to come and go in waves. There is a time of interest for uh, for these kind of things, then it kind of fades away, then it comes back at some point. Same thing with uh, all kind of all kinds of elements, you know. In, in culture, like as I say, the last time we had a bigger boom with this, I think it was. 70s probably i would say late 60s or 70s probably then there was a bigger one um what this tells about the 
the society and the culture? Well, this can be many things, like uh, sometimes some peop people, um, scholars speculate that these things relate to uh, like uh, when times are difficult, be it economically or in other ways, maybe like a, there is like a presence of potential war or whatever, like a, or that uh, or that there is a war. Like during the last time Finland was in in war, and there was uh, people in this kind of conditions. Then naturally, because there were casualties, um, families, family members, and uh, wives, and and so we're interested. Like, uh, how can we contact our dead son? Mm. All these kind of things. There's some kind of correlation, of course, what's going on in the society. These kind of things don't happen in vacuum. But um, I, I can't say, say like why we are now having this kind of growing interest in these things, what it tells about our society, Western culture in general today. Maybe like a, after some time has passed, maybe 20, 30 years, when we have a little distance, it's more easier to pinpoint that, aha, uh -huh, it was because of this or that or those things. But uh, I don't know, but it's interesting times for sure. Right. Is that the last war? Is that the Winter War, Soviet Union? Yeah. Yeah, um, the, yeah Winter War and the Continuation War, Yatkosota. Yeah, those were the last ones we have had. And now there is, of course, the world situation is what it is. So all these kind of uh, memories come back to uh, to uh, people. And uh, well, it's understandable. Those things were fairly close when you look at history, like a, uh, way less than 100 years. Yeah, historically, it's just a blink of an eye. So, mm. uh, Yeah, you make an interesting observation in the book where you... Um you mentioned that because Finland's history is relatively young, that it's a nation still searching for its national identity, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Mm. Yeah, um, Finland became independent in 1917, so uh, we've been relatively short time independent. Of course, during that time, lots of lots of things have happened, and. Uh, and uh, the world has changed a lot in so many ways. But uh, curiously enough, this theme of uh, of uh, search for national identity and uh, and uh, different kind of groups having different kind of stance on this whole situation, it's still there, just like uh, about 100 years ago. Like uh, hmm. Pekka Ervas, uh, he had this vision of basically European Union, where we are now. Back then, it was just his vision. And we have the uh, same currency throughout Europe, basically, uh, matches with his vision. He had this kind of vision that basically, I think he would have been happy with the idea of uh, that let's, let's, uh, let's renew the uh, borders of uh, individual states and let's be like a really like brothers and sisters and, and uh, put down these national, this nationalistic ideas and all of that. Then there is, of course, back then there was people who had absolutely opposing ideas. Basically, the same situation is still here in a different form. So, uh, <clears throat> um, lots of details and um, things have changed, but there is very much similar kind of basic, basic situation still. And as life goes on, things change. change so. It's a. Uh, it's very interesting, and in our book, of course, uh, 
this uh, whole theme of uh, national identity and nationalism, things related like the national epic Kalevala, uh, which is full of, of course, mythological elements and so on, have been and is still inspiring um, some esotericists. Like uh, all these things, these elements have been there and it's pretty interesting how how they have continued to inspire esotericists like in the past and still today like there are people who find these uh, folkloristic materials or the kalevala the national epic and things related these still inspire and touch move people who are involved with uh, esoteric practices so we are in this kind of interesting place in the world kind of between east and the west and and uh well it's it's an odd kind of an alchemical place in its own way that's 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 fascinating insight um so you mentioned pekka Urvast, right yeah. yeah i love i love the discussion on that guy so something <laughs> i was curious about was theosophy it's kind of fallen out of favor it seems to me among uh the general uh, esoteric studies landscape. I, I see a lot of people kind of see actually a lot of people kind of laugh at theosophists and stuff. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if that's also true in Finland and how, well, I guess first, cause I would like to know that and um, what Pekka's continued influences, if any, but um, we should probably a little bit dive into exactly who Pekka or best was. So could you give us a little bit of a background on him? All right, yeah, um, Pekka Ervas uh, was born 1875, died 1934. Uh, he became a kind of a, started his own spiritual search um, work very early and joined Theosophical Society very early. It was super, super important for uh, forming of Finnish branch of Theosophical Society. And he, uh, he was a prolific writer during his life. He wrote like a tons of stuff, books and articles, all kinds of things. He gave lots of uh, talks, presentations uh, in Finland, also in Sweden, and uh, had contacts throughout the world uh, to members of Theosophical Society, of course. And uh, he was also uh, crucial in bringing this Ledroit Humain kind of Freemasonry to Finland, uh, the, the kind of Freemasonry that accepts both uh, men and women. And then he also founded his own organization called Rusuristi or Rose Cross. This happened after. Um, he gets uh, in a bad terms with the Theosophical Society, basically, and decided to call it quits and start his own organization. He was, a, you could say, left-leaning in his political views, but at the same time, he uh, tried to keep distance to politics altogether, and uh, he also tried to um, remind others in theosophical society about the same which was of course a big reason within theosophical society for all kind of uh, uh, inner fights that they had there and uh, Ervast was uh, one of those who was very inspired by the Finnish mythology and our national epic Kalevala so he was very important uh, person for many reasons uh, he was um, 
Yeah, he was quite a monumental figure, you could say. And uh, if if there is talk about Finnish esotericism or occult history, and the Persian doesn't mention Pekka Ervast in in that talk, something seriously wrong. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 there was something that you were. Uh, asking, but yeah, about uh, how how uh, theosophical society is nowadays in Finland and how Ervast is considered. Well, the organization still exists, uh, but they don't have that many members nowadays. It's like a few hundred, if I remember right, three, four hundred maybe, mm. and the um, average age of their members is pretty high. So it looks like that uh, it's uh, getting more and more a group of pensioners. If they want to get uh, their organization uh, going and uh, staying on the map, they would need to attract more young young members. Uh, so it's an interesting situation that are those who are interested in esoteric topics, and so they don't seem to find theosophy uh, very appealing for one reason or another. Maybe because uh, it's kind of uh, looks uh, dusty. There are all those uh, very old kind of, um, I guess, from today's perspective, like uh, um, boring ways to uh, contextualize, put this theoretically, all these things that theosophy was about. It's a kind of historical curiosity and uh, dusty, boring, something like that. But uh, but uh, I don't know. At the same time, there is uh, some very interesting new angles to the whole situation like a coming from a very like a surprising direction there is this one a finnish uh left-hand path organization this uh, azazel in that the star of azazel um i guess they call themselves also satanists or satanist organization at least they call themselves left-hand path their organization um at least the founder of the group, this Johannes Nefastos, he has uh, drawn lots of inspiration from Theosophy. And uh, he also like uh, has given clearly appreciation for things like uh, uh, Sermon of, of the Mount, some teachings of Jesus and stuff like that. At the same time, they are left-hand path organization. I think that uh, members of Theosophical Society, well, they are happy that young people find Theosophy and uh, Theosophical teachings and old literature, but uh, I guess they have a little bit of a problem, like uh, getting attention from uh, that direction, like a young young Satanist or so. Um, I think they probably would pre prefer that uh, the young blood would come from somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, maybe they just don't mix well. It's mm. always struck me as uh, sad because I I just find that whole theosophist the theosophist theosophists period yeah. of history to be it's a fascinating period of history and the lives that those people led are just absolutely fascinating and I, I always thought that their ideas were really beautiful and interesting and fascinating and um yeah it's interesting to me how they they get kind of ridiculed a lot or pushed aside or ignored i don't know it's just odd to me but um and so another uh you're talking about the finnish national epic and you also earlier you briefly mentioned um the black bible which is also kind of this um finnish uh esoteric work 
that is very prominent in Finnish culture, to my understanding. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And specifically, you've mentioned that it gets kind of a bad rap, maybe just starting with the name, that the name makes it seem like it's much darker than it is. So could you um, just talk a little bit about what the book actually is like and what its background is? Sure. Um, well, um, the claim goes that this book, sixth and the seventh book of Moses, or in Finnish, uh, Mustarama to the Black Bible, that uh, it would have been uh, that the book would have been uh, those parts, the sixth and seventh book of Moses, that they would have been originally in the Christian Bible, and that they would have been removed there, and that's a kind of uh, this kind of hidden occult stuff that has been supposedly removed from the Bible. Well, that's a beautiful story, but uh, apparently that grimoire, this uh, book, was composed much, much later. It was, uh, I think, the first time published in Germany by this one uh, occult um, occult book seller and publisher. I don't remember his right name right now, but it's there in our book mentioned uh it was published i think in the 19th century and uh well it was a fascinating work during that time and of course it became translated translated to other languages and the first finnish edition i think was published 1902 by uh, american finnish people and for some reason they decided to call it in finnish mustaramattu subtitle Moses in Kudis, the States of Muscadia, the sixth and the seventh book of Moses. Of course, like that sounds uh, much more interesting. I guess it sells better. I would have done the same probably. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's probably the reason when it comes to the contents, like there is not really like anything like a, or of course it depends on your definition of black magic, what is black magic, but there's just some uh, basically kind of kind of kabbalistic spells for finding the treasure and summoning this and this kind of elementals and uh it's when it comes to the contents it's a it's actually a pretty boring book and it's uh, the name uh gives much more sinister kind of aura to it what it really is but uh but um it's it's been it's been popping up in finnish history here and there like uh, of course uh in the very early last century when it was published it started to circulate then there was the tatarisua case when it became to everybody's lips and of course got super super infamous uh a name to it understandably like uh, with this kind of case and um pekkaer was also warned about the book and uh and this uh mm, is a neo-Nazi worshiping the devil to and our God in the 70s and 80s, 90s. Uh, he sold copies of that book too, and uh, it's been there throughout all these decades. And uh, everybody knows it. It has a it has a certain kind of uh, special aura in in Finland. It's the most known grimoire. This kind of. Uh, occult book in Finland for sure that I think everybody knows knows that book by name and uh, people still buy it surprisingly like the new editions of the book are printed every now and then like a very nice editions but uh, when it comes to how seriously people take it or so uh, nowadays it's like a curiosity I don't know anybody have not heard 
anybody for decades who would have thought of it seriously. It just, it just had this aura and uh, this history with it, like uh, probably starting from the Tataris case and so. So if you're interested in occultism, esotericism, and you live here, uh, it's part of your education. You need to, <laughs> you need to read the book or if not buy it. <laughs> And uh, and uh, and uh, but it's not a Finnish work. Uh, it's a. It, it was probably written by this German guy who published the first edition. I think it was in the nineteenth uh, century. Mm. Interestingly enough, this Bekkasiton, who I mentioned, he mentioned that uh, that uh, Kalevala, our national epic, which has of course like. Uh, stories about the beginning of the world how it was mythically born and and there are all these kind of um, magical themes and elements and and so forth so Seton said that uh, that uh, Kalevala <clears throat> our national epic that it's it's like the black bible of Finland and Finnish people and as such it's a way better like a sorcery book to us than this Mustaramatto and um yeah, yeah. It's interesting how uh, the reputation of this book has stayed stayed here. I think that it was still like in the nineteen nineties or so. It had so bad reputation that some libraries in Finland kind of declined to take it to their shelves, so that uh, youth wouldn't be badly influenced or something like that. Really odd stuff. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the Necronomicon here, which yeah. Yeah, supposed to be passed off as this real translation of an ancient grimoire and right. traced it back to some people in the 70s. So, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that, just a little bit older, kind of like same story, but older. Right. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Like a Necronomicon had a similar kind of feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, where do I want to go next? Let me see. All right, Sternval family, Sternval, mm -hmm. Sternval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's touch on that because that touches on Gurdjieff, and uh, I'm a very big fan of Gurdjieff, and I know a lot of people that follow this channel are fans of Gurdjieff. So, um, could you just talk a little bit about that family and um, their relationship to Gurdjieff? Yeah, sure. Um, Leonid, Elisaveta, uh, and later Nikolai de Sternval. Um, the Stierno family was a noble family. They were very coming from a well noble background, very like a high level society. Uh, Leonid was a doctor. Uh, Elisabetta was basically just a housewife. Um, they uh, they started to like follow Kurdjieff in Saint Petersburg uh, in the beginning of uh, last century. And um, they are, Leonid has his uh, practice. Uh, it was both kind of in Finland and uh, on the Russian side of the border. The border was back then uh, more to the east than what it's now. But, uh, but uh, they met in St. Petersburg and uh, get involved with Kurdjieff groups. And uh, back then, uh, Kurdjieff groups also, and Kurdjieff himself, uh, Met, met the Stiernvals and I guess other Finns who were interested also on the Finland side of the border where it was back then. My guess is that uh, nowadays 
where this famous meeting, for example, between Gurdjieff and B.D. Uspensky, where was this famous telepathical communication. I think that if we look where it was on the map, probably on the now nowadays map, it would be on the Russian side, on this Karjala, Karelia area, which back then still belonged to Finland, but we lost it uh, later. Um, but it was in that this area where there were held meetings uh, in St. Petersburg and around it here and there. Then, of course, the situation started to change in Russian Empire, and uh, Gurdjieff smelled that something was in the air. He, of course, knew pretty, pretty well uh, what the political climate was like and had connections inside uh, inside like a political circles too and so so he decided to leave the country and uh gave a hint also for the this this journal family that liquidates all that you have and leave, leave the place like there's going to be like a hard times to anybody who stays so uh hesitantly they did turn part of their property into money and started to follow Gurdjieff. They had this exodus that started basically from St. Petersburg and went through the Black Sea area and uh, all around here and there, finally ending up in France in, 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 the, in this place where they founded the Institute for the Harmonious Development of, of Man. And, uh, and this Tiernwald family followed, was part of this whole story, this whole traveling around Europe, and finally establishing the institute in in France. Um, Leonid was the oldest of Gurdjieff's pupils, and uh, he was also said to be one of the most kind of fanatical, if you want, like he really was diehard about the ideas. And so um, the, uh, their son, Nikolai, this is an interesting side story to the story, like uh, apparently Leonid and Elisaveta, they had some problem uh, getting a biological child themselves. So uh, they ask if if Gurdjieff could come to help, <laughs> which he happily did. <laughs> and and out of this, uh, this helping hand, or should I say organ, came uh, Nikolai de Stjernval. Uh, and uh, well, Leonid and Elisaveta brought him up as their own son, but the biological father was Kurjev, and he was also Nikolai, one of the few children that Kurjev uh, himself like uh, mentioned by name during his lifetime. That uh, this is my son. I'm his biological father. There was like um, five or six others that he mentioned by name, and uh, and. Um, Nikolai later wrote uh, this memoir, uh, my, my father, my daddy Kurjev, Father Kurjev, a very, very interesting memoir of uh, the Stiernal, Stiernal families, uh, like adventures in time with Kurjev around the Europe and, uh, and uh, in France, of course. It's, uh, it's something that uh, haven't come that often. Uh, up, of course, like people who are yeah, very interested in the Kurjev saga, the whole history of uh, his ideas and his lives, they know these figures they have come up with. 
here and there, but uh, in general, like uh, the Stirnwall family has been quite quite unknown. So uh, this, of course, needed to be in our book because uh, they were uh, only known people who were that closely involved with Gurdjieff during during his lifetime. Uh, after this turn was, uh, there's been Gurdjieff groups in Finland since the late 60s. First, there was this uh, group that uh, was uh, based on um, Bennett, this uh, British student of Gurdjieff. And uh, nowadays we have a kind of Gurdjieff line of teaching that came 2001 to Finland. And there's also one another, another group so interest to these ideas have continued continued here but uh the first historical like a proof of Finnish people being involved with the movement uh, they came come all the way back to Gurdjieff's time hmm. yeah I thought it was interesting with that uh Sternvald family that they also met Rasputin it's like how many people get to meet your Jeff and Rasputin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not 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 too many. That's wild. That's real wild. <laughs> yeah, you get to meet like two of the most famous mystics ever. You know, that's that's yeah. it's got to give you an interesting perspective on life. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, all right, so ufology. Ufology is uh, actually seems to be seeing a resurgence of interest here. I don't know if that's global, um, but here in the U.S. it is. And I loved the chapter on ufo ufology in Finland. So um, could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, it's um, nowadays in this, in this Internet time, like uh, basically the same theme, same ideas, uh, same groups same videos same everything is uh read and seen by people around the world who just happen to be interested in these things absolutely same same things can be found here i've seen the same videos about the the phoenix lights and uh and the uh and the supposed like uh, green aliens and was it skinny bobby videos <laughs> and uh, all, all these things, uh, everybody has seen the same things, read the same basic documents and so forth. Uh, but uh, when it comes to Finland and, uh, and uh, what's been going on here, uh, sure, like uh, the chapter puts in a nutshell, lots of lots of things uh, related to this topic. There are the main figures involved, uh, their stories, their contributions uh, summarized. And there are case stories, like the main main uh, main cases. And then there is uh, information about what's going on, what kind of groups we have now, and uh, what are main main people involved nowadays, what kind of UFO contactees there are pub publicly, and and so so it covers pretty much. Uh, all the basic bones of the story when it comes to what has happened in in Finland. Uh, the chapter starts with this beautiful story, very old folk story about basically UFOs. And then we come to the uh, last century and the story begins with this Margit Lilius Mustaba, who was born 1899, died 1991. He was a ballet dancer and Finnish opera. He uh, emigrated to the States later. He claimed to have uh, met aliens 
many cases and he recounts those in his books that she wrote she um she wrote yes and um that was in the i think uh 30s 40s 50s then there are um, different kind of case stories of very interesting experiences that have uh, been reported by a number of people and the famous Pudasjärvi UFO craze that happened in the late 60s, early 70s, that's, uh, that's told in the book too. This was probably the most known Finnish UFO, like a craze. It's uh, Pudasjärvi is uh, more up in the north of Finland. Uh, it's basically kind of a mountain. And around this same area, uh, lots of lots of people Lots of different witnesses, so very oddly behaving uh, balls of lights and light phenomena in general, a kind of behavior that is uh, didn't like um, seem like a natural phenomena, that uh, it was something else. And very well reported, there were some photo, some quite many photographs taken and uh, literally like a dozen, dozens of people uh, witnessing this these cases. This was, of course, like a reason that the topic came in Finnish press, very heavily present, and uh, it was written a lot during those times. Uh, quite many books on the topic was published around the same time too. But then the phenomena started to fade, like around 73 or so, and that also affected, of course, like uh, how much there was public interest to it. But um, there's been cases here and there after that, and uh, this woman Ufotutkijat, Finnish UFO researchers, uh, they uh, they publish these annuals, these uh, yearbooks about what's been going on lately, and uh, reporting the cases and what's what's been studied and all of all of that. Then we have our uh, contactee persons like Kalevi Riikonen, Rauni Lena Luukkonen, Kilde, and and uh, other people like Johan Afgran, very colorful man who has done some documentaries. Um, all these kind of things. It's uh, basically everything in one small chapter. Well, here, um, I assume after what you just said, it's probably similar there, but you know, a lot of the UFO enthusiasts, it seems like there's two camps of them. You have the nuts and bolts enthusiasts, the ones who think that they're just just ships flying from other planets and then you have the people who take more the idea that they're like the jacques ballet school of people that thinks it's more of a connected to consciousness and essentially connected to the same kinds of phenomenon as um, spirits or ghosts or whatever that it's all yeah. part of this underlying mystery of consciousness um yeah. it seems like the nuts and bolts people by far are still winning here in the united states and I, i'm curious in finland if you know what what would you say the general landscape feels like like which of those schools is prom more prominent i think that um i would say the same is here like uh, the situation like the nuts and bolts people like um, i guess that's the majority like uh, if we would make a survey on the street like do you believe uh there's uh, like a intelligent life elsewhere in the universe i guess most Finns would say like uh, the probability is that absolutely yes that uh, it looks like it doesn't make sense that we would be alone but uh 
then there is a, a group of these people who really like to take this whole thing to the next level. They have a kind of spiritual touch in it, or they are contactees, or they, they have some other kind of a more kind of esoteric angle to it, that it's not just like this kind of intellectual curiosity playing with the with the theme and the and the reports and uh, kind of different kind of evidence that have been presented and and so the whole spectrum is again here but uh things in general uh we are fairly well educated so um so um in general things are pretty kind of uh, healthy skeptical again uh, towards anything but uh, of course there's uh like um, as i said the whole spectrum represented so there are people who go absolutely all the way to the deep end too but uh hmm. yeah so the um oh i just had i just had the question that i wanted to ask and it slipped my mind um about the oh so we talked about these subjects about the Finnish perception in general, about occult ideas, spiritual ideas. Mm. What's the situation of mainstream religion in, in Finland right now? Like, um, has it died out in popularity? Is like just Christianity, uh, Islam, are those things still popular in Finland? Mm. You you mean like a mainstream religions? Are they still popular? Yeah, just like going to church on Sunday or going to the mosque or you know. Ah, uh, all right. Uh, Finland has been a well. It's a funny situation. Uh, basically, if you look, uh, let's say Wikipedia article about Finland, you will find that we have a state state church. There is this uh, Lutheran, Evangelic Lutheran state church. It sounds like these guys are really religious. It's it must be very conservative and uh, suppressive against uh, all kind of things. <laughs> That's not true. That's absolutely not true. Like uh, the state church, it's just a cultural kind of tradition. That's how it you know, like uh, has established here. When it comes to how many people go to church uh, every Sunday, um, it's throughout the country. The churches are like absolutely empty. There's just few people going here and there. Probably the Christmas church is when it's most full and people go just out of a habit. But uh, and otherwise, when people go to church, it's when somebody graduates and uh, it somehow involved the whole thing with with the church and somebody gets married or somebody dies and gets buried or stuff like that <clears throat> otherwise um like uh, what's the percentage how many people belong to this state church nowadays i don't remember for sure but uh it's dropping year by year uh, people are members of the state church just out of uh habit it's a, it's it's just formality like uh, yeah when you die if you're a member of the church you get your gravesite a bit cheaper so there is practical things involved too <laughs> uh so um sure there are tons of people who believe in uh christian ideas christian teaching but when it comes to like uh activity in the in church uh, that's that's pretty pathetic um, um, nowadays we have of course like a other main um, main uh, world 
religions present here too like uh, islam is of course like uh, has been growing in number of its uh, practitioners uh, largely because of the immigration but uh the number of uh, those practitioners too it's a relatively small um when it comes to this kind of alternative alternative uh, spiritual let's use that word uh viewpoints and groups and so um uh, uh, i'd say that's surprisingly big probably because uh you have a more freedom of choosing there like uh, uh what kind of a mix of things you uh, you have in your spiritual like a um, palette of, of things and this is of course very typical to to uh spirituality in general nowadays throughout the world that uh, it's very syncretic like it's a uh, it's a bits and pieces from here and there that um, people collect kind of create their own kind of uh, spiritual practices and their own place in this whole network of various things like uh, based on what kind of things work for you what you like it's a kind of a marketplace if you will and um and yeah i'd say that these uh, different kind of alternative groups and uh currents movements in general they are um, doing surprisingly well uh christianity and all the other religions they are there too but uh they don't have like a very very big effect on finnish culture and so it's it's a part of our culture and uh, tradition but all over finland is very secular secular place yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so got it. Got you about an hour now. I appreciate the time. And we're going to ask a couple just like uh, business questions about the book and the translation of the book and your future for it. But I have one more con content question. Yeah. Which, uh, if you could talk about um, Jarl Faller. Yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting character. Could you talk yeah, about well, him a little bit? Yeah. Jarl Faller, one of my, my own uh, personal favorites. Uh, of the whole book. Uh, Fowler, uh, born in 1925, died in 1990. Um, he was a parapsychologist. Uh, he was uh, um, involved with hypnotism too. Uh, his worldviews uh, were very similar to uh, Buddhism and Gurdjieff's ideas in general. Very basic, same kind of uh, underlying ideas that uh, humanity is basically asleep semi-conscious functioning base of uh, um, impulses coming through our senses and uh, because of that we really do not exist we are really not present and making conscious choices experiences in the moment we are just kind of uh, flesh and bones machines uh, this basic kind of Gurdjieffian uh, view was uh, shared by Jar Fowler uh, he studied also uh, LSD and mescaline in the States and in Finland in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he was very like a positive about the potential of these substances for uh, one's self-understanding and I guess uh, potential for society in general if used right. And uh, <clears throat> he is most known for his book Satana of the Telemassa, basically interview with Satan, which uh, 
the kind of a poetic way of uh, just um, referring to um, certain kind of dimensions of one's own consciousness. Uh, he, uh, in the book is a very severe criticism against uh, Western uh, culture, civilization in general, and uh, he's basically um, repeating these same Buddhist Gurdjieff ideas about uh, our dream state, how much we are asleep, and how instead of kind of a spiritual superstition, we are now a kind of scientific superstition or a kind of a scientific witchcraft, if you will, like a rationality is still a kind of a small slice of the cake of totality of existence. It can't explain everything. It can't be uh, the basis for healthy, uh, holistic human existence, like because totality of existence by its nature is irrational or suprarational. So, uh, when we get more and more uh, involved, our societies become bureaucratic and run by technology. Instead of being our servant, we become the servant of technology. And uh, a kind of a living spirit is pressed out of the whole system and the structures of society. It's a kind of... A, kind of this kind of Aldous Huxley's or George Orwell's uh, anti-utopia world where we are getting and that father shared that uh, this is a bad direction like uh, if, if this uh, this kind of a scientific worldview is uh, kind of more and more pressing the, the possibility for li real living spirit or consciousness uh, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a sad situation for us and we should uh, wake up and uh, do do change to the situation. Otherwise, we are getting into third world war or knock, knock, nuclear destruction or something like that. Uh, he um, he was very angry man, a uh, young man in his uh, own time. And I guess he would have kind of wanted to get more recognition for his uh, work. He was kind of between the scientific uh, academic world and uh, practitioner. He tried to, tried to find a kind of middle ground. And I really respect him for that, how he did it and what he did. And his books are great too, in their own right. Um, he, um, at the end of his life, he kind of retired from a public light and uh, and died in 19, 1990. But uh, he was a very interesting figure that I think should have got more attention here. And uh, I wouldn't mind if he would get more attention worldwide too, but a uh, very, very uh, balanced, deep, deep guy who did very interesting research. Yeah, I, I, would, I had the same impression. That's, um, I, I would love to see him enter a little more conversation and uh, learn a little bit more about him. Because, yeah, neat guy. Um, yeah. Interesting guy, at least. Um, so with the book, you initially published it in Finnish. You had all the success. Did you do the English translation yourself or did you hire somebody else or work with somebody else? I mean, I'm you and your co-author. I mean. Yeah, well, um, I'm also the translator of the book. But uh, when I say that, I need to also, uh, with the same breath, uh, give credit to uh, my proofreading and editing team. Uh, here in Finland, I has, uh, had a uh, Tuukka Frank and Boris Brander who 
who checked the rough rough translation I made because I thought I need to have a proofreaders and uh, like a checkers also in this end people who know the Finnish culture and how things change in the process of translation so I need people from uh, Finland's point of view checking the translation and then there is the native speakers of English and um Inner Traditions, absolutely fantastic publisher, great, great people uh, at every point of the, of the process. There was this uh, Albo Sudekim and Michael Monihan who were doing the proofreading and uh, editing of the text. Uh, without them, these, uh, these people, the text would be way, way worse than what it is now. It ended up absolutely great. I really am thankful for the team. I was uh, privileged. To, to work with so yeah i was the translator but i had these uh, guys to work with me Bertu, uh, who i wrote the book with uh he really wanted to get the book in english already 2015 and uh he nudged me friendly like very often like hey we don't have money to get this book translated because we don't have uh, like a, en enough money to pay to anybody to translate it well. So, and you've been translating a few books already. So, how about you translate it? Because then we need to don't need to pay to anybody. <laughs> I was busy with things, very busy. Uh, but when I finally, uh, uh, two years ago, got everything out of the way that I was busy with, I felt at that point Perto had passed away. He died in a bicycle accident in 2018. And um, I felt that uh, if I don't do this thing now, nobody is probably going to. And that's a big pity. I felt it was a matter of honor. Uh, to my uh, dear friend, and uh, and uh, that needed to be fulfilled. Funnily enough, I saw quite a few dreams after Perto passed away, where he continued to remind me, <laughs> "We need to finish this project. <laughs> it's, it, it's 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 a great thing." <laughs> and he, he he referred to this book uh, while he was still alive that it's my it's part of my great work uh, to use the alistair crowley's uh, terms and uh, and it was very very important and big thing for him so i'm absolutely happy that finally finally this book came out in english in in such a great uh, english version thanks to my great team and and that we got such an awesome publisher inner traditions absolutely 10 out of 10 great people great publisher yeah, I agree. I, I love working with them as well. I do. I get a lot of these interviews um, just with their uh, marketing team. So yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're always great to work with. Yeah. Uh, so do you have any, I, I know it's kind of a, a wild time to be talking about travel right now, but anytime, any plans to do any kind of promotion where the English version is being sold? Um, thus far, there's been discussion uh, only about um, me going to talk about the book to Norway. But uh, there, some uh, somebody asked if if I'm coming to the states to talk about the books. If there's some kind of a promotional tour, um, that's a nice idea. But there's not being like any serious talk about that. And yeah, these are crazy times. It's getting a little bit better when it comes to traveling and traveling restrictions, all of that. But um, I'm open. If somebody wants to book me to talk. Uh, send me a message. <laughs> that would be great. 
Very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hoping. Obviously, I, there's no way for me to know, but I'm, I'm hoping the book um, is a huge success here because seriously, it's it's probably it's one of the most entertaining books that I've read um, in this sphere. Um, just in general, actually, it's one of the most entertaining books I've read. But um, yeah, but, but it's also just chock full of um, useful, fascinating um, insights. If you're a person who is inclined to um, a more kind of esoteric way of looking at life, mm -hmm. but the book can be appreciated by anybody. Um, I think materials might actually appreciate it even more because of the humor in it. <laughs> fun. Yeah. And that's something I love about the book. I, I put that in my written review, but um, I love that you, you clearly have respect for these subjects, but, um, but you're not afraid to poke fun and laugh at them too, which I think is really uh, it's fun and it's healthy and it, it just kind of makes it more approachable in my, my perspective. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that um, too often these kind of books, books dealing with history of esoteric topics, they are kind of dry, although there could be like uh, elements that would make it somehow more lively or even funny. It doesn't mean that you are disrespectful to the topics at all. Like when it comes to our intention, uh, it wasn't our intention at all to like a mock uh, the people in in the book or make them like a look only like a silly people or 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 stupid or anything on the contrary i think that bottom line we had a respect for people we just wanted to tell their stories with everything they contain with the silly aspects with the serious aspects it just emphasizes that uh, uh well the human nature like uh, and the different kind of uh manifestations that are human kind of a spiritual impulse if you will what kind of uh, aspects it can have it can be all the way from this kind of uh, noble high Beckham Ervas type of search to something like uh, Eorbok or Tattarisu Gang or Pekka Sito and everything in between it can be very serious and noble it can be absolutely chaotic and silly and horrible uh, that's uh, that's uh, human nature universally, and uh, we wanted to have all of that there, without uh, like uh, making it only like a look like a ridiculous or so. Not at all. We just wanted to basically present the whole spectrum of what kind of uh, manifestations human search can take, and uh, basically that's you and me. That's humanity, <laughs> right? No, I definitely think you succeeded. I mean, like uh, the Pekka Urbass is a perfect situation. There's a couple parts in there where you poke fun at some really uh, <laughs> some some times where I think maybe his I, his mind got away from him and he, he believed a little, uh, some silly things. But it didn't in any way make me feel like he was a comical character. Like I came away from it definitely respecting him and taking him seriously. Just like you said, looking at human beings, we all I, I on a daily basis do things that people can laugh at me about. So. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think you succeeded with that. And I think it's one of the best aspects of the book, personally, from my humble opinion. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe it is that, uh, uh, like when it comes to researchers of uh, esoteric topics or so, uh, they recognize that um, these things tend to tend to look uh, for the popularity, for the general population, like that are uh, a bit out there, like a who in their right minds would think this kind of things do this kind of things it easily goes to the direction that uh 
these people are some somehow like uh, not okay with their heads or there is something funny or just it's just plain ridiculous uh, researchers understand that uh, uh, it doesn't mean it's like this uh, per se as such like that uh, these are just things who uh, people and uh, kind of themes that look like that for the like a mainstream but they have been uh, kind of an undercurrent often in a culture uh, elements there that eff affected this and that here and there and uh, maybe because of that like uh, lots of these kind of history books dealing with esoteric topics like uh, seem to be dry that the researchers want to present them like uh, give them the honor that they deserve that let's not poke too much fun of these guys or so i understand that and uh, it's a very noble approach and that's good and, uh, but uh, when it comes to our book, uh, yeah, we don't we we don't intend to say that these people are crazy and stupid, and so we just want to give the whole spectrum of a manifestation of these things. It's a it's a respect throughout. Right. Yeah. I mean, you achieve that even with Velo and his crew, which is um, I mm -hmm. think probably the they would be the easiest ones to be. Um, well, some of those UFO characters too would be like really easy to just make cartoons out of and just um, laugh at. And uh, you didn't do that. Like I, I actually came away feeling a great amount of human um, just empathy for Velo and his crew. And, um, and uh, the same way with those UFO characters, uh, some of mm -hmm. which um, I have ideas, which I know are a little out there, but there were some characters in your book that go quite a bit further than I do. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was still um, still respectful and um and definitely empathy i think that was the big thing like uh, they came through as real human beings flawed noble and silly at the same time you know what i mean like that's how we all are i just think when you when you believe weird niche things i think those things are just magnified you know what i mean like we all have moments of nobility and we all have moments of foolishness but when you believe something very much outside the mainstream, I feel like those things are just like augmented and amplified, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then there's also this element of what, what for, for example, your father that you asked about, like I mentioned that uh, <clears throat> if you're very like serious and uh, you are mentally all stable and uh, you have a rational approach, like you build your metaphysical view of, uh, of the universe based on as rational thinking as possible, whatever. Uh, this deeper universe uh, experience of it, insights that we might get of it, it's way beyond the words. And because of that, if you try to put experiences, uh, maybe some kind of understanding of that in the words, it's very, very limited uh, way to try to get the richness and uh, everything of this deeper universe. Uh, so uh, it's kind of uh, doomed to fail when you try to communicate it with with the words, and words it's a uh, it's a kind of rational rational system. The whole like uh, how grammatic words, how log logic works, how it works with the words and languages and so forth. Uh, it can't grasp the supra rational living essence consciousness whatever you want to call it so it is bound to look silly at least in some people's eyes who don't share your viewpoint <laughs> thank right, you so right. much for you. Oh, do you have anything else that you would like to um, add any other projects or anything like that um well 
maybe I could say that uh, if um, anybody is interested to see uh, like uh, some extra photos that are not in the book, uh, we have a page in uh, Facebook and we have an Instagram page. There are more photos than in the book. They are in color. There's also some extra background information, I guess, here and there. So uh, those might interest uh, uh, some people. And uh, well, otherwise, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk with you and for your reviews. Much appreciated. Your, your channel is great. Lots of good stuff. People, check it out if you haven't already. <laughs> I understand. I really appreciate that coming from you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. So, um, yeah, and I will put those links that you just mentioned. Uh, they will be in the description box right below the video for everybody to go to. So, um, all right. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. And um, good luck with the book. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you, sir.